is it fast or is it hold? Is it shoot or is it loose? These are the kinds of questions we talk about here on the Easton Target Archery Podcast. And then it leads to a discussion about spelling and grammar, punctuation. Aluminum or aluminium? That was decided in 1776. You know, we're really going far afield here. Yeah, we haven't really talked about archery. But we're about to. Um, I almost wonder if we shouldn't restart the show. Did we get too far gone? No, I think we're... Yeah, we're good. We can we can continue. Seven minutes. Seven minutes in. We can we can I say we restart it. Yeah? Yeah. Just out of a sense of uh self preservation. We could talk about how we had an eight minute opener that just could not be used. Because it was too salty for Yeah, it was too good. Alright, we can decide when the show is done. No, let's start it right now. Why is this chair opener? Why is this chair squeaking? Something must be loose. Hi, I'm George Tekbachev here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson, and this is Easton Target Archery Podcast 204. 204.5. 204 point something. Yeah, we got pretty far into an opener and then decided it wasn't fit for public consumption. It was not, because we offended a whole bunch of different cultures by... <laughs> we, definitely, we definitely offended the British. I don't know if we offended them. They should have actually been... They should have been pretty proud chuffed, of us. For chuffed, having, Yeah. Well, not chuffed even. They should have been keen to know where we amused gained an inter- an understanding of the monarchy. We did. We we had a deep dive into the uh, monarchy and the recent coronation of King Charles. Of King Charles, was there any archery involved in the coronation? I didn't see any. There were swords. Hey, you got to give uh, props to that lady from. I think she was a minister of Parliament, right? A member of Parliament. Excuse didn't me. Didn't watch. She held this, basically, caliburn, you know. I don't know what that is. Uh, an ancient sword. I assumed it was a sword. I assume it's a large sword. A big sword. Yeah. Big, heavy sword. Um, it's got a big sounding name. Unlike the Japanese, the, the British went heavy when it came to broadswords. Yeah. And, and, and caliburn is a it's the original sword of King Arthur. It was lost and then replaced by Excalibur. Never mind. Oh, yeah, all right. The point is that it looked, you know, it was like that kind of sword, you know, like this giant broadsword and she's standing there for an hour straight holding this thing she's got to have some serious forearms by holding now. it up like how like this huh if you saw the coronation you know what i'm talking about that's pretty impressive i was impressed and i i i, I would say props to that but yeah anyway we're barely off a track that got us off the track in the first place that made us restart the show. But we're only a minute and 40 seconds into this off track. Just about. Instead of, we were eight minutes into people's we, spelling we were, and grammar issues. We were. We were going into how the difference... Aluminum, folks. It's aluminum. Okay? It's aluminum. All right. Hey, a um, lot going on this week in the uh, world of archery. Uh, the biggest thing, of course, being the 2023 Hyundai Archery World Cup second stage and that is in Shanghai, China, for the first time since the beginning of the coup. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, been pretty gnarly, it looks like. Some rain. Gnarly weather. Some wind. Gnarly, stadium, gnarly weather. The stadium has two openings. I know. I've shot there, and it does not yeah, do you any favors. They're both to your... Um, if, if it's bad shooting, weather, you get this swirling effect in there. Yeah, you want to be right in the middle. Yeah. Which is where you won't deal with the swirl. But at the end, it's kind of like, you know how uh, when a hurricane goes around or a a typhoon, you have the calm in the middle. And then you have the crazy stuff going on at the edges. It's like that in that stadium. Yeah, those two openings are at the back, you know, the backside behind the archers, but on the far left, far right. Yeah. Wind gets moving through there and it's pretty, pretty tough. So when you look at the scores, um, it's pretty clear. Uh, It was not an easy qualification round of the recurve men. We had a total, by the way, of, um, you know, which I'd call a light total, to be honest with you. 92 shooters showed up for this thing. Uh, your number one shooter was Brady Ellison by a single point. But boy, did he hamburger his fingers doing it because he was shooting in pouring rain. I saw that. Did you see the picture he posted? Yeah. He, Oof. He's got pretty nasty, nasty hands. He's got wounds right down to the meat. And, um, you know, that used to happen to me because I had excesses. I will tell you, I had excessive finger tension a lot of the time I was shooting. And so my fingers would just, you know, at a certain point, they'd just pop loose. And 
Um, a combination of the um, liniment absorbing junior, which you would soak your fingers in, and then you'd cover the wounds with collodion. Collodion is um, basically a, it's, uh, it's cellophane that is dissolved in ether and you can paint it on to the skin. It'll, it'll stick to the skin. Hmm. And then you cover that with Coban or vet wrap and you can get through a tournament, you know, with a, with a, basically an open wound on your fingers, which is exactly the situation Brady's finding himself in right now. But sounds terrible. It was terrible. You know, there's a reason why you compound guys are probably a little smarter than us recruit guys. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Brady shot a 671 point above. Uh, you know, I got to say, Marcus Dale made it. Props to Marcus. I, I have uh, been impressed. He's had a nice little. I'm not even going to call it a comeback, but, you know, he came out. That kind of is, though, because he, he did well in Yankton. Well, he came out early in his in his career, shot really well. Yeah, before the Rio Olympic Games. Yep, and then, you know, kind of yeah. faded a little bit yeah. and wasn't ever bad. I think he just had a couple struggles. No, but kind of a middling guy, not yeah. a podium guy, but a guy who would shoot reasonably good qualification scores and then kind of not pull it through in the end. And now he's, he's become a force. Win. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lee Wu-Siok of Korea was third. Um, then, you know, China had one of their shooters in fourth place, uh, Wang Dipang. Maro Nespoli. Maro Nespoli. Uh, fifth place. The, the guy is just relentless. Yeah, just... just Silver medalist of it. Tokyo 2020 does not quit. And then um, shooter from Chinese Taipei, Tang Chichun. Kim Jidok of Korea, the man known for his own version of the Brady Roar from Tokyo 2020, eighth place. You had um, Senna Roos from Netherlands, an up-and-coming guy, right? And uh, Baptiste Adi of France, who was part of the development team. You know what? I don't know Senna Roos. I, I, um, I believe I've heard of him, and I believe that uh, Dean knows him pretty well. Yeah, Baptiste had the success at Nîmes. Yep. Indoors. Yep. But you know who impresses me on this list here? 12th place. Oh, Jin Hyuk. Oh, Jin freaking Hyuk. The guy is just relentless. Just Shoulder not, injury and all, he's just not quitting. Not quitting. Not uh, quitting. Yeah, what's a... Uh... World number one Kim Woo Jin, um, 19th in the qualifying round. Felix Weiser of Germany, 16th. Yuki Kawata of Japan, um, 19th place. This is one of those qualification rounds that really screws everything up because you've got yeah. very good archers who qualified low. Yeah, Steve Weiler and yeah. Meta Gazos and Takahara Furukawa come to mind right John away. Charles Valadon. Yeah, JC's Ryan down in 32nd Tayak. place, for goodness sake. Yeah, those two are going to battle in the first yeah. round. Ilfat Abdulin of uh, Kazakhstan, a very good shooter, by the way. Um, Seen the name? You know, you've got... Um, Florian Anu Das. Anu Das, 44th place. Yeah, Florian Unruh, 52nd. Yeah, that's just not right. Something's not right there. It's called They Got Beat Up by Rain. Yeah, Got Beat Up by Rain. Maybe Nero got away from him. Something yeah. like, something along those lines. And this was you know, highly likely in those. And the Spanish guys didn't do their traditional uh, level of performance. No, the whole thing is kind of uh, hard to gauge. You, you can't really tell who's where because... Yeah. They didn't shoot in normal conditions. I don't know what they're shooting in for eliminations tomorrow, but it won't be it won't be a clean bracket, you know. It's gonna be yeah. a little messed up. And by tomorrow you're talking about Friday, May nineteenth, um, in China. Yeah. And uh, as we record right now, it's about five o'clock in the morning in Shanghai, China on that day. So we'll see, you know. Yeah, four hours from now they'll be shooting, huh? Yep. For the women, 72 arrows gave a score of 671 to Kang Che Young. Kang the Destroyer. Kang the Destroyer. High score. Beat Brady. Mm-hmm. Head to head because they both shot at the same time. Yeah. Now, I don't know which target, you know, assignment we're talking about here, whether that's a factor here, but Kang the Destroyer was the highest shooter on the field, bar none. Man or a woman. Yep. Pretty impressive. She's done it before. Pretty impressive. The scores themselves are not that great, 338 and 333. I mean, a 670, never bad in the no. in women's recurve. That'll always put you probably top five. Yeah, but, you know, the fact that that was the high score for the entire field, 
you know, I mean, you're expecting 640s these days. I mean, sorry, you're expecting 340-somethings. Yeah, 680s. Easily, right? 680s? And none of that because the yeah. weather just sucked. But Korea was one, two, was one, three, four, and Ten. so you're seeing Korea and Chinese Taipei mixing it up in here. Korea, number one, <laughs> yeah. Peng Chia Mao from Chinese Taipei, second, Choi Misun from Korea, and An San from Korea, third and fourth, fifth place, Lei Chen Ying of Chinese Taipei. In comes Penny Healy, sixth place for GBR. And a really talented shooter from Japan, Tomomi Sugimoto. Um, Tomomi didn't make the team for Tokyo, even though she was the high prospect. If the Tokyo Games had happened on schedule, Tomomi would have meddled, telling you right now she was shooting at that level. But that delay of a year could cost her. Yeah, there's definitely, it's it's tough to peak at the right time in recurve. And it was all timing. Mm -hmm. It was all timing. So she was she, second after the first pass, three thirty-five first half. Then yeah. the wind or the rain or both probably yeah. just dumped, you know. Yeah. But with that said, you know, pretty credible, uh, right up there with uh, some of the best in the world. And this is the first um, international event she's done for a while. So I think that that's nice to see, and a terrific person. Um, let's see here. We've got, uh, you know, Team China. Um, moving a little bit here. We're not seeing the kinds of scores that you might expect from them before an Olympic year, but they're they're making progress here. And then you've got Katharina Bauer, um, pretty much the top European, if we're not counting GBR. Um, I mean, know. they're... They're part of... It's in Europe, right? Okay, yeah, but you know, it's but, Brexit, right? So, But, yeah, are we going to count it? She's the top European Union archer. Okay. Katarina was. Yeah. And after that, you've got archers from Italy and Mexico and Spain, but... Uh, yeah, I mean... I, it, I, I'm going to interrupt. I did see a funny meme the other day about the coronation of King Charles that the, the guy said he's now the dictator of all of the European Union. <laughs> And everyone has to do what he says. Yeah. It was pretty great. Just people to stir really people up. Just yeah, to get people yeah, upset. It really gets the people going. All right, back to archery. Yeah. Well, if I wanted to get people upset, I'd say something about Queen Camilla, but I won't. <laughs> All right, moving on. I'm going to be in so much trouble. Well, <laughs> like that's ever stopped me. But, you know, just like with the uh, men, right? There's a number of women down in the 30s and 40s that you don't expect to see down there. Yeah, there, um, there's uh, an Olympic medalist who didn't make the cut. Uh, yeah. You know, just had a rough go in the rain and couldn't make it happen. Yeah. Might have had some misses, might have missed the whole end. Who knows what happened. Yeah, I, I, I know who you're talking about. And also you've got a number of other, another Olympic medalist who's down in the 40s, you know. And one in 54th. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, Laura Vanderwinkel from Netherlands, who's been really competitive all year. She was fifty fifth. Yeah, Gabby Schlusser thirty seventh. And yeah. you know, I, it's just it's going to be a toss up the rest of the week. Yeah, Michelle Kropen twenty sixth. But you know, at the end, it's not the qualification round that counts. It's how you do in your brackets, and you know that's coming up soon. The the case of the teams um, for the recurve men, we have seen a victory for Japan in the bronze medal match. I uh, got a text from Takaharu Furukawa. He was pretty happy about that, uh, along with Yuki Kawata and Fumio Saito. Uh, Mr. Saito, a relatively new, a relative newcomer to international competition for Japan. Um, they beat Spain, which is not easy, because Spain has some talent. And uh, so, you know, you're looking at a situation where Japan beat Spain. I, I think it took a shoot-off to accomplish that. And they did it. So that was the end. Now, the final will be China versus Korea, and that'll be very interesting. Speaking of interesting, not to uh, not to go off uh, in a situation that's going to get us canceled by a global power, but I will point out that when it comes to the Team Recurve Women's Bronze Medal Final, it was... Chinese Taipei that defeated the People's Republic of China in the semifinal. So it's going to be Chinese Taipei versus Korea for the final. Real showdown there. And that was kind of how qualification played out, too. Yeah. It was Korea Taipei, Korea Taipei. They were yeah. all right there. Yeah. So 
Chinese Taipei and Republic of Korea, I'll just say it because this is our podcast, Taiwan and Korea, <laughs> are going to be shooting in the uh, gold medal final. And that should be very interesting considering that this tournament is happening in Shanghai. Yes. Um, we had Indonesia 4th, Mexico 5th, Japan 6th, GBR 7th, which I'm sure was a, uh, a disappointment for GBR with both Penny Healy and Briani Pittman on there. Um, you know, a couple of strong shooters. No American women in the team round at this event. As far as I know, there are no American women at this event. Correct. The only two American archers were... Uh, Brady and Brady Chris Schaff, right? It wasn't really the plan to have an American team at this one, mostly because... Our finals for our world team selection at Gator Cup were at the same time and actually were arranged for before the announcement of this schedule yeah, for this event. They always typically have one event that's not a funded event as well. And so, this one's just that. Correct. And, you know, if you've looked at the price of tickets to go to Shanghai, if, ouch. So, compound. Um, in compound men, we are seeing... Pretty good performances from Mexico and Netherlands and Turkey, or uh, officially now Turkey. Saw that. Turkey. I'm just going to say Turkey. I'm not Turkish. I can I can get away with it. Um, Batuhan Achaoglu and Emirchan Haney and Yakup Yildiz of Turkey beat the team of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, France was fifth. India 6th, Bangladesh 7th, Korea number 8, which is a disappointment for the men of Korea. But it'll be Mexico versus Netherlands for the compound men. Now, for the compound women, when you look at the qualification round and you look at the outcome um, of, of what we've got here, we are seeing a pretty good performance from Team Korea for the, rec- for the compound women. And, uh, you know, that clearly means... That some of the work that they're putting in, the effort that they're putting in to grow compound in Korea is starting the process of paying off. The problem is compound is harder to dominate than recurve. You know? But right now it's Mexico versus Korea for the women's compound team final. You've got uh, Oh Yu Hyun, So Che Won, and Song Yun Su, all of whom came here to Salt Lake City to train and get their equipment sorted out by the engineers at Hoyt and Easton. And then you've got Andrea Becerra, Ana Sofia Hernandez, and Daphne Quintero of Mexico. They'll be facing off for the gold medal. It'll be a firecracker of a match, no doubt. Turkey took third. GBR was fourth, so GBR versus Turkey in that bronze medal final, and Turkey came out on top. You had India fifth, Estonia sixth, Italy seventh, France number eight, and Indonesia number nine. For the compound men, we are seeing um, a couple surprises, maybe. You know, your semifinalists are Robin Jatma from Estonia, who we see a lot indoors. Uh, he's been pretty solid the last couple of years outdoors, too. Uh-huh. And um, someone I don't know very well from India, Samadhan Jakwar. Jokar, excuse me. I don't know him either. So Mike Schlusser, who we do know very well. Heard of him, yes. And Yang J1 of Korea, part of uh, the team that came here to Salt Lake City. Mr. Yang uh, is number well there's you know he's, he's in the finals so yeah him and mike will shoot against each other yep and it'll be robin side. versus prathamesh uh jack jokar of india for the other semifinal, and then we'll find out who's going to shoot for bronze and who will shoot for gold yeah um, side. falling by the wayside were Choi yun hee of korea tim jeffsnick of slovenia matthias fullerton of denmark talented kid Joseph Bozanski, who won the last World Cup, the guy from uh, Slovakia. And then, um, you know, in the next group down, you got uh, some really talented shooters and a couple of uh, guys who, you know what, they're making a bit of a comeback. Martin Damsbo's in this group. You have uh, Batuhan Achaglu of Turkey, Nicholas Girard of France, who was just tearing it up last year around this time. Chris Schaff, of course. Uh, Mohamed uh, Saleh. Palizban of Iran, uh, Mats Hogseth of Norway, and um, Shemai Yamron of Israel, and uh, Jakob Yildiz of Turkey. Yeah, there's... Uh, I know our friend Guy Matskin was happy to see how the uh, Israeli guys were doing. So I'm looking at scores. They're really... They were kind of all over the board. It yeah. must have stayed kind of crappy in there. I think the weather was just not great. 
Yeah, that's that's one of the issues with uh with outdoor archery. Outdoor Just, archery and in a stadium because it, it yeah. a stadium takes a situation and can either moderate it or can really really make it worse. I depending think it on makes the it architecture. worse. You just don't get consistency. That's it. You can't feel the wind necessarily. Yeah. You know the shelter you get from the stadium might also shelter you from understanding what's happening. Yeah, and, and then you can look at right. They have a, a regulation as to where wind flags are set. Yep. And you can look at, you can generally see three. Yeah. Always two. And you, you can look at those and they'll all be doing something different. Yep. And then what do you, you know, what do you go with? Yeah. You go with what you think or feel, I guess. But for, uh, for the compound women, we've got um, Kaur Avnit, who I don't know very well. We have uh, Miss Cho of Korea, Cho Su, uh, Ella Gibson of GBR, and uh, another shooter I'm not very familiar with, which is uh, Ipek Tom Rook of Turkey. I think Ella might be the only one who's ever been in an individual final here. Could be. Um, a number of other outstanding shooters. We have uh, Son Yun Su, fifth. Daphne Quintero of Mexico ended up sixth, tied with Elisa Rohner of Italy. Um, and then uh, another relatively new shooter from India, Miss Swami, who I think I've seen in an Asian cup once before um, after that you've got uh, Bona Akhtar of Bangladesh Hazal Burun of Turkey another shooter I'm not familiar with Grace Chapel of GBR do you know Grace? I do not uh, I think I've met her okay Sandra Herva of France uh, Fatin Matsalek of Malaysia who I do know very well Oh Yu Hyun of course of Korea and So Che Wan of Korea um, who ought to ought to have a side gig as an English translator she's so good at that yeah she's very good so yeah, you got a, and you Josie got a Venom. Korean in each compound final. Yeah, yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah, if you think about it, and what because they haven't made a lot of medal matches. They have not. They have had a lot of qualification success, very little medal match. I, I think it's premature to say this, but I think it's not unfair to say that you know Rio's had an impact over For there. Sure, absolutely. There's at least, I mean. Uh, added confidence that he'll bring and right and with him there with you right a guy who's been up there a lot that's kind of nice to have yeah right? and he texts me quite a bit you know with uh, technical stuff that you know he wants to discuss and uh he's definitely dialed into what each and each one of those shooters is doing so i think that's what they needed they needed somebody that understood tuning and and that sort of thing and i think that that's you know that's played out. out for him it has worked out all right, so last Target Archery podcast we did, number 203, we gave away to the first three listeners whose questions we tackled on the show a dozen Avance arrows. And this time, we're going to do it again, but with the new SuperDrive Micro. What's the SuperDrive Micro? It's an all-carbon micro-diameter arrow with unsurpassed tolerances for weight and spine, 360 degrees around the arrow, very, very straight, and lightweight. So a high-performance arrow. Kind of think of it as a pro comp, but all carbon. It's kind of in that, in that in space. Kind of that realm. Yeah, it's yeah. a lighter. It's a bit it's lighter. It's a 4-mil, 167 yeah. internal. Yeah, and, and really you know, quite durable, high-performance, all-carbon shaft. So useful for compound and for recurve. You know, it's the kind of arrow that Easton makes that's in the middle of their line. But a lot of companies, this would be their top-of-the-line product. I think we said that last time, too. We said that about the Avance, and it's also true of this arrow. Yeah. This so. one, it's good. You know, Mike used this. Mike Schlosser used just this arrow at Redding to get 101 yards for Bigfoot. Just he, for that one shot? Yeah, yeah. He uses X10s otherwise, and then he put on this arrow and a different sight. How'd it go? I don't know. Well. I have no idea. That's still... Uh, pretty impressive it's quite a way to approach something it's a so, long yes yeah, well I, I don't know if i would have done that he he has a fairly low peep height so he struggles oh, yeah. to get so he could yards. he might not have gotten the uh, the distance correct he couldn't get the distance with a regular setup which is that's an interesting thing and people have a lot of assumptions about that that are incorrect you know and and there's a there's more to that you know people will i'm gonna go off on a little mini rant but this happens on the bow hunting side a lot too People will compare two different arrows, and they are two different diameters, 
They never move their rest, and they go, oh, these ones hit lower so they don't fly as flat. But it's effectively changing your knocking point. Yes, you're, you're running a arrow down because it's smaller diameter. Anyhow, happens all the time. Uh, I don't remember exactly where I was going with this, but I think people don't give enough credit to understanding what peep height and sight radius does. Yeah, there's a there's a big interaction. Achieve there. a sight tape length, right? Well, you know, if you play with Archer's Advantage, for example, that immediately tells you the effects because if you plug in a slightly different number for peep height, just as one example, yeah, you get a very different result on your tape. Correct, and you, well, yeah, you'll you would need to go and shoot in the new number. Right, you move your peep height and then go shoot in a new sight mark on yeah. on each side. But yeah, peep height is pretty critical. And if you're uh, if you don't know, then you know you might assume something is all strictly related to arrow weight or speed. And it's yeah. it's not. There's yeah. there's a lot playing into the distance you'll get. Out yeah. Of the bow. Well, I don't think that was a rant. I think that was a good point you made. Hopefully someone learned something. Yeah, but while we're talking about the super drive, that's what you can expect. The first three listeners who have their questions selected for this podcast from the previous Facebook posts on Easton Target Archery, as well as the one for this show, we're going to pick from both pools of, of stuff, you will get a dozen super drive micros of choice. And first three. First three. I want Maybe to make that very clear. Maybe when we read the question, we say, congrats, you are a winner. I did that in the last show, but we still had some people that were confused. Yeah, well, we'll do it so. super loud. We'll play music. And there's one other thing. Balloons and all that. You are not going to get a random email telling yeah. you you're a winner, okay? <laughs> What's gonna, what you're going to do is, once you hear us announce that you're a winner on this podcast, you're going to send an email with your contact information to podcast at eastontp.com. That's podcast at eastontp.com, and I will mention this again later in the show. And that's how we'll handle it. You're not going to be getting some random Yahoo address. <laughs> okay? From Mitch Hogg? Whatever. From yeah. whatever it is. So, um, <laughs> because, you know what? Jay Jensen warned me that something like this could happen. Yeah. I, he actually I, said, how are you going to prevent somebody from hijacking the giveaway and telling people they're winners and he was right. Yep. Okay. It happens all the time. Yeah. Well, I had no idea. I was naive. You want to pick the first question? Our first one, winner, congrats, Raven Guthrie. Guthrie? Guthrie? Probably? Yeah, probably Guthrie. Yeah. Sorry, Raven. As in Woody? Maybe it's Raven. No. It's Raven. It's probably Raven Guthrie. Yeah. So, Raven, here's the deal. We're going to um, award you one dozen Superdrive micros in your choice. You need to send us an email. Uh, podcast at eastontp.com with your contact information. A lot of weird, fake ravens. Guess what? I actually have a way to sort those out. Okay. All right? Anyway. I'm interested. All right. Uh, Raven asks, his question is, for 3D, I tend to stay on the stiff side for arrow selection. But I've heard numerous times for micro shafts that a little bit weaker is better like to hear Steve's process for setting up micro shafts meaning that I'm in the same ballpark as him with a long draw length where everything is so much more critical yep so to clarify we're talking compound here yep compound with release yeah and when he says micros he's talking like a 4 mil or a X10 or something like that somewhere in that range yeah. right um, Eason Axis hunting arrow comes into play as well for when you're talking micro diameter yeah the the funny thing is like when people say oh a weaker arrow shoots better at at distance or whatever that's i've heard that before i'm always like wasn't well, that just the optimal arrow then whatever arrow shoots best at the distance you're trying to shoot isn't that optimal it's not necessarily weak or stiff it just is what it is yeah i i think you're right yeah and i think a lot of people still refer to even the eastern tune chart and they see which aren't you working on a project to update that eastern tuning chart or tuning guide yeah yeah there's Back in the day when it was originally written, it, it had stuff that was probably relevant to the equipment at the time. But I actually vastly simplified that section you're about to talk about. Right. So if it showed a left tear, people would go, oh, that's, you know, I'm talking for a right-hand shooter. Left tear, knock left tear. Yeah. But it also had wiggle room to say it might be opposite. Yeah. But people would say, oh, that's a weak tear. Yeah. And that's... Uh, and that was not necessarily correct. No. and pe But people, whether the chart or the book or whatever it was said anything... 
what people took was left tear is a weak tear. Yeah. And I mean, like, really, really high-profile archers to this day still believe. Yeah, you know, we would have been better served if we used some of the same language that they use in quantum physics. We should have said it was a left-hand quirk or a right-hand quirk rather than calling it a a weak or stiff because it was whatever it was. It was left or it was right. It was up or it was down or some combination of those things. Yes. And how we reported what those were was for certain an envelope of users correct it it was because it was tearing weak but there was other interactions that weren't accounted for sure and that was part of the deal and and so to your point in the long run it created shall we call it an incorrect impression of what the real cause and effects were it walked you through how to get out of them but it didn't necessarily put the correct picture in your head of what of was what, actually going what on the cause was yeah yeah so yeah so i go back to the, hearing that term oh weaker arrow tunes better with uh small diameter stuff because that you know or, or at distance because that's what you're shooting at distance and i've never never bought into that that theory um same reason that a straight perfect bullet hole is not necessarily the best grouping situation correct o- yeah. in fact often is not often is not so and with a compound you have a ton of side load from the cables, right? Like 200-something pounds of side load yeah. from cables being offset throughout the shot process. And then... Which is just one of several variables. Yeah. Torque, Torque on your Torque, how grip. you grip it, uh, how you pressure it against your face yep. creates a deflection of the string coming yep. off. There's so many factors that can create a left or a right tear. Even in the vertical plane, the stiffness of your blade or yes. the cam action in terms of the knocking point travel. Yeah, just yeah, what the cam is designed for. Right. So, like, old cam and a halfs would they had pretty significant vertical travel. Yeah. Or advancement yeah. or retardation of cam top or bottom. Correct. That can change everything because it changes the load rate on the arrow. Yep. So, I always you know hate to disappoint people in this, but the best way to figure out which spine is optimal is to get about two, maybe three spines. Cut them all the same length, all the same point weight, and shoot them a bunch. And then really have a way to chart that and figure out which one statistically is better. And then cut them a different length and try there. <laughs> and then try a different point weight, right? That's a, If you're trying to get totally optimal, you would do that and you would spend a pile of money on arrows. Um, I don't think you need to go to that level to really find something that's optimal or very close to it you know better than better than what the vast majority of archers can shoot um easton's arrow recommendation chart will for a compound almost always get you where you need to be in my experience so my personal experience was grab the stiffest one they make and shoot that because it was needed um what we would do say with my wife linda was exactly what I had just mentioned there is you know I had the benefit of grabbing three or four blem arrows out of the bucket that you know weren't weight spec generally um you know I might get her a a 520 spine and a 570 spine three or four of each one and shoot those and see if there was like a noticeable difference in grouping and then try it with a different point weight see if there's noticeable difference in grouping and, and go from there and uh that's, but you know, I could have gone to the chart and it would have recommended a five twenty or a five seventy. Right. So, or thereabouts. So, you know, I, I think we've said some of this before, but if you if you haven't heard us say it, there are several variables that you can adjust on the bow before you got to go changing spines on the arrow. For free. For free. <laughs> all of our all of which are for free unless you count the cost of a set of quality Allen wrenches. Yeah. And number one is weight. Yep. Right? A small amount of weight change can make a big difference in how the arrow responds. So, all right? Yeah, and at 100%. I've had, you know where you can really find uh, tuning to be more critical is with a fixed blade broadhead, if you bow hunt. And almost always I can cre- I can correct any issue I'm having turning the limb bolts with those and not have to change anything. Go two, three pounds one direction or another and you get into an optimal setting 
Um, what do you say we go with uh, this question here from Greg Sammons? Yeah, you want me to read it? Or yeah, read sure. It? Okay, <clears throat> this is probably more towards you. And Greg, by the way, you are a winner. Since we're choosing you as the second of three questions, you're the winner, you're the winner. of a dozen Superdrive micro aero shafts from Easton. Spine value of your choice. Greg asks, with Easton having an incredible 100 years of excellence under the belt, what are each of you most proud of for being involved with a project, product, team accomplishment, or a positive outcome? You've had, I think you've been involved in most of the significant modern developments in Easton history. So why don't you go first? Yeah, well, you're not wrong, but those are a team effort. Um, No one individual, with the possible exception of, of Jim Easton and Greg Easton, is in a position to take total credit for anything you know, that the company has accomplished. I will say that, um, you know, I'm pretty happy with how the X10 turned out and I'm pretty happy with some other stuff, but I'm, I'm going to tell you that my thing that I'm most proud of being involved with isn't a product at all. It is a project. And that project was to save archery in the Olympic games. It was to create a round that was compelling enough that television was interested in carrying archery. And that was a vision of Jim Easton that I had a small part in helping to realize. And I think of all the stuff I've done in the sport, that's the only thing that I would say is something that I really feel had a significant impact in the big scheme of things. It's, you know, just the original plan for how you would announce, how you would run a match head-to-head how you would create the timing and the drama for the um, spectators and for the TV audience. That's all stuff we had to create from scratch. And so from my personal point of view, that's the one project that I participated in that I think um, I'm most proud of, if I have to. And that was where? We started that with the Barcelona Olympic Games. And then you did the X-10 after that. That's true. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty cool to, you know, hearken it back to something that's actually, it's outside the company, but it's 100% within the purview of the company too. Well, and Jim Easton at the time was the president of FIDA, and he was very concerned with the fact, not a, not a, not a, you know, possibility, a fact that archery was going to be out of the games by 96 if they didn't do something to make the round accessible to television. Right. So Jim Easton saved archery in the modern Olympic games. And I had a small part in helping with that. Yeah, I don't have anything that significant, so... (laughs) Veltmeister shaft? No, I mean, that was, you know, more of a personal thing than anything. But, you know, it was a part of it. Obviously, it it was cool, I think, for the whole company when I I did win a a world championship because everyone gets to be a part of it. 100%. We all celebrated together. We all did. It was great. Um... You know, I think just like the the stuff that I was more involved in was not as heralded as something like an X10, you know, like that stuff had already came and occurred by the time I got there. So it's just like a constant refinement and a constant aim at continuous improvement that I always wanted to be a part of, you know, and uh, the... No, you and I would discuss stuff every day. Yes. That, you know, like stuff what? that you wanted to accomplish and, and reasons for it. And, yeah. you know, why the why, because you had the, especially on the compound side, you had the gravitas, not just being a world champion, but having the technical understanding of why stuff does what it does. It was very valuable to the engineering team. Well, I think everyone has a, the company was built off of building quality products right and the manufacturing process shows that and then you get someone in who doesn't play the game who doesn't go out in the archery world and who decides they can you know make a change here or there and we got to go and slap them upside the head sometimes you know but sometimes we got slapped upside yeah you get you take some lumps now and again fighting for what's right but uh we always did you know we always tried to do what was right on behalf of the customer and and on behalf of the company which has always been Jim and Greg's philosophy 100% yeah quality is the first 
component of the what is it the mission statement yeah 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 quality safety value all that stuff service something service I forgot them since I don't work there anymore yeah but. same here but you know <laughs> but yeah that was I think that was part of it you know uh, being just being in it and I wasn't there for a whole long time seven years but that's a long time on some levels we we got to do some cool stuff and some some of that stuff is finally coming to fruition we had to move some people into retirement before we could move some things forward um not you (laughs) 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 and and you know that that stuff's finally happening i remember like my first probably my first year there we had a a four-day Kaizen event, which is where we we would sit, we'd focus very specifically all day, every day on one topic. And that's all you think about and all you do. And then you create action items from it. And we created a lot of good stuff back then in 2015 or 16 when I did that. A lot of good action items. And some of those sadly are just coming to light, but thankfully they are coming to light. And it was just for one one reason or another and you know a pandemic disrupted a lot of development and things of that nature but some cool stuff came from it you know uh, I think you and I got to kind of dream up the pro comp as it was which really wasn't a whole lot of a dream it was just understanding something that we had and how we could create something well we, uh, we you had an idea and I had a means of realizing the idea right and that synergy that we had working together on that sort of thing was very good, you know? Yes. Um, so stuff like that, mine were all seem to be little projects, you know, just... They all add up, though. People with the bow case today, you know, I got to help Clint with how we yeah. lay out the bow case and yeah. how we designed the new bow truck. And people today are always like, man, this case is sweet. And I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, we, we sat in Clint's office with all my crap, putting it in and out and figuring out a better way to lay things out and here's what you know a touring professional archer needs and carries and here's what we need to cram in here and keep it airline weight stuff like that you know was an everyday thing and it's always fun to be a part of yeah you know stuff like the pin knock when i designed the pin knock back in the early 90s who would have thought that that would be like the it's like a staple in yeah a staple we didn't bother patenting it (laughs) right it's uh, almost, in fact, in you know World Cup <clears> archery, <throat> there's probably probably every compounder is using a pin knock of some sort. Yeah. Yeah, and a good percentage of the the recurve archers, some are using an over knock or something of the sort. But yeah, but a lot of the vast majority are using over. the pin knock. Yeah. yeah. And you know, you got multiple companies making versions of them and. So that was a game changer because it saved people's arrows. That was my main motivation then. You had a new one that we had talked about and were working on, then we both bailed. Yes. I don't know if you remember that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it was kind of cool. Well, and it may still happen someday. Yeah. In the meantime, um, you know what? Um, I think the, most, the thing I'm most proud of is being associated with a company like that that was so deeply involved in enhancing growing and protecting the sport of archery that uh to a fault know, being part of that yeah i mean nobody i'm going to say this right now nobody has ever done as much as greg and jim to protect the sport of archery yeah greg and jim have done more for other arrow companies than they've done for themselves that's a fact that's absolutely a fact so so being able to be associated with those guys that's that's a that's yeah, a point of pride for yeah, sure it's cool All it's right. very cool Moving on, you want to pick our third one? Uh, yes. Third and final. Third and final winner. Third and final winner. Kenny Goodman. All right, let me find this one. Kenny. All right, here it is. In the last podcast, Steve spoke on the topic of practice routines and not rushing through the shot process. Can you provide more insight into developing a solid shot process? Kenny, it's a good question. Steve, you're the expert. Well, you should probably cover one too because it's going to be a little bit different for recurve. Yeah, and we will. We'll, yeah. we'll. But I'd like you to cover it from the compound side first because that's that's your yeah uh, area of expertise. So if you were going to go to like any Joad coach or any archery coach, really, they're probably going to teach you to go through some type of routine or shot process. 
and most all of them are going to look fairly similar and you know it's going to be a, you know some type of take your stance and get aligned to the target um i think a lot of people blow it on this right off the get-go stance they don't align well or they give up inches you know like in an indoor always i see people straddling the line perfectly i'm like you have this is a game of less than millimeters and you just gave you know four or five inches up so you're saying don't straddle the line symmetrically on an 18 meter round no. stand closer to the target if you can take your back foot right up to the target line yeah because it's allowed right in the there. rules why as wouldn't close you? as you can why wouldn't you number one then grip two i think you got to get your grip set um you got to get your grip set or ready to be set before you draw your bow and there's a way to do that to then you know when you come to full draw you're always in the same consistent grip position and if you feel that different before you or while you're drawing I mean, you might as well just start over because it's going to be a miss or it's going to just feel wrong i'm yeah. going to interrupt just to say this so far everything you're talking about applies equally to compound and recurve all right so we'll if we deviate we'll point it out <laughs> Um, at that point, I'm going to hook my release, right? And then same, you're going to take a grip on the release, too. Mm -hmm. uh, on your tab. That differently. You're, you're going to grab the string. Yeah. If you do, if you do that differently, or if you have your fing fingers deeper into the string with a tab or something. Pressure again, distribution, high and low, yeah. how much you're wrapping around, all that stuff, it yeah. applies either way. Whether you're pulling on the release with your fingers, that, that also applies, right? I mean, yeah. how much pressure you put Top on each finger. On. Yeah. yeah. So I try to distribute, like... When I'm when I'm drawing, people who have watched me they'll notice my third finger is barely engaged. It's like a, it's like a two three percent of the total pressure, if that you know, uh, when I'm drawing the bow. First finger's got probably ninety, maybe not that high, but anyhow, something to think about. You want to think about how you're gripping the release. You don't have to do what I do, but figure that out and get consistent with it. Next thing I'll do is see the target. Like I want to actually look at the target I'm about to draw on because. I don't want to shoot the wrong target, right? Yeah, make sure that you're lined up to the correct target. <laughs> correct. You yes. know, yeah, you may think, listener, that this is, well, that's just silly. No, it's not. You wouldn't believe. You know what? I'm not sure I know anybody that hasn't shot the wrong target at some point in their career. I've done it, and I will do it again. I've done it. So, <laughs> yeah, so you, you see your target you're going to draw on, and then as you're drawing, usually you're you're watching it through the scope, and, it you know, it should all come into view and look correct. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes, if you look and something doesn't feel right, take take another look because yeah. you're probably right. Yeah, indoors especially, you know, oh, yeah. you go, you switch top to bottom at a Vegas round, and oh, that's where everyone screws up. So yeah, you'll see them walking down to go get the errant arrow. Yeah. you know, in between because they'll hold the, the line. Yeah, the walk of shame. Um, all right, so I'm seeing the target, and I'm and then I'm drawing the bow. It's kind of a, a shared motion, you could say. Um, as I'm coming to anchor, I'm taking my thumb off of my peg. I shoot a hinge release. You know, I draw it with my thumb on the peg, and then I'm coming off right there. In so, the case of the recurve, I am pulling through the clicker and setting up just shy of coming through the point. Now, just before I have done the draw, I am going to take a look around to see what the conditions are before I attend to sure. target again. Yeah. Especially in windy conditions, I'm going to look at whatever wind indicators I have, the flag, for example, or whatever might be a clue to me even my ears will be a clue as to what's going on is the wind about to start up again is it about to dwell down a bit so pay attention to the conditions indoors less but you know outdoors yeah. for sure i mean yeah outdoors you gotta that'd probably be something i would do probably pre-shot yep or it would always be a post shot i'd shoot the arrow spot where it hit then check the wind to see if you know, if it caught me by surprise, I would check the wind. If it was what I thought, I'm moving on. Wind often has a rhythm, so at least figuring out that rhythm during your pre-shot process is not a bad idea. Yeah. So you can time yourself, if you have the time. Correct. So as I'm anchoring, coming off thumb peg, you know, coming down and starting and, and aiming and execution process, and that's going to be different for everybody, how you want to do that and what your release style is. But, you know, that's pretty much that's the gist of it and i don't think i want to go through a you know multi-step checklist once i'm aiming and executing i want that to be kind of subconscious and automatic yes yes you do it enough times and you don't have to think about it and and i think when i what i said in the previous podcast where i started to like shortcut the, the shot process 
that's where I'm losing it. Because mm-hmm. the first, you know, six steps I mentioned or whatever, those are pretty much automatic and just part of what I've done and developed and, you know, thousands and thousands of arrows shooting. It's like, you know, opening a door. You just I just do it now. Um, yeah. But the, the aim where I was shortcutting is in that aiming and execution process. I would see the shot that I wanted to have execute I would see it visually boom there's the sight picture I want why is it not executing and then your aim process gets jacked up you need to continue the aiming throughout that until you know whatever triggers it in the subconscious here's the fork in the road with the recurve and and this fork in the road actually is a three-way intersection what we have here is there's two different schools of thought that have that have become competitive with each other and are both capable of very high performances. But in the last 15 years, a certain number of shooters, many of whom have a background in compound archery, place at least more lip service on the process of aiming as they execute. Mm -hmm. Whereas the previous regime, which I'm part of, (laughs) would have said, Execution trumps aiming. If you execute a good shot, aiming kind of takes care of itself and is secondary or even tertiary. Now, 10 years ago, you saw people like Brady Ellison selecting what, by all external view, would be something that would be more appropriate to a compound bow for an aperture, which was a fine fiber optic aperture that they would intentively place on the target and then execute the shot based upon back tension and whatever other factors mm-hmm. they had in their shot. That was not the mainstream of recurve execution consciousness for the time. And to this day, you'll still find, um, including in Korea, coaches advocating motion trumps aiming. And because, you know, recurve archery is a little more like a martial art, right? You know how you can focus and break a board? Well, if you have good execution, you can have your sight not where you want it, and the arrow still somehow magically ends up in the middle. Because you're working back towards center. Correct. Yeah, it's like driving a car, which I've mentioned on here before. Yeah, it's a good analogy. You're always working the car into the center of the lane or wherever you want it to go, right? You're You're not thinking about it, though. Yeah, you're almost never just sitting there holding the wheel dead straight almost never right it's always got micro adjustments going on and yes you're never thinking about it and there's probably a lot of that in in a lot of compound shot processes as well and i always have said you know i like to try to build an equal tension between the front hand and the back hand throughout the shot um you know i haven't been shooting a whole lot lately and i've probably forgotten a lot about it but you know as poorly as i shot at reading i found my shot process again on the last day I was like, oh yeah, that's how it used to feel and look, you know, and and uh, felt good, you know, and there was a, a nice equal building of tension, and and what it did was it cleaned up the aim too, you know, it, it became a secondary or tertiary part of the uh, execution, but where you can't shortcut is in the aiming process, whether it's whether the aiming is part of your execution process or you think I'm gonna aim, aim, aim and my execution will happen, you know, that's kind of up to you. But the last thing you can do is create an expectation that a shot should fire. Like, it will fire when you've executed the shot. But you have to go through that process of executing the shot. If you think it should have fired, you'll, you'll get some kind of a... You'll, you'll probably finish the shot to fire it. And what I mean by that is you'll be... For a right-hand shooter, what you'll often do is be pushing shots off with your bow hand because you're starting like a follow-through process. Yeah. And uh, anticipating, you know, the recoil of the bow or the impact of the bow. And now you've created, you're creating a shot that is based off of movement rather than like a linear drive through the target. Yeah. And that doesn't always work long-term. That's where especially. you can get those lefts and rights. Right. And then you're, you're also just creating a like an anticipation you're anticipating everything that is to come and it you then as that builds upon itself now you're struggling to even aim it at all sometimes you see this happen with recurve and clicker as well and you definitely see it happen 
with Barebow. Yeah, I've I've heard so. Frank McDonough, uh, he does that podcast, podcast about yeah yeah. He told me he's. I asked him about a recurve archer once, and he said, "Oh yeah, he's pretty good, but he's new, so he's going to get target panic soon." Yeah. <laughs> not not a not a turn of phrase that I really like, but the truth is there's yeah. a, there is a thirty percent turnover rate among the ranks of barebow. Huh? You think they they get they come in they're building they're building they plateau then they run into an issue with anticipation. An awful lot of them counts. do. An awful lot of them do, and some they're... work past it and some don't. And I think a lot of those thirty percent, not all of them, obviously, because people have life get in the way, but. A lot of that 30% rollover rate that you're seeing is partially because of that factor. That you know, struggle. Pete Shepley once told me that the one thing that he wished he could solve in the industry of archery was a solution to that phenomenon, <laughs> to that <laughs> yeah. freezing, hesitation, whatever you want to call it. I don't even like using the term because, you know, it's the like term. like Lord Voldemort. It is. And, you know. The term that must not be named. Yeah, once you start getting people thinking about it, it actually becomes self-actualizing. So I don't. Yeah, I don't, there is a bit of that, you know. And, and I'll the, never forget 30 years ago, I was in Vegas and every table at the Vegas shoot, this was at the Tropicana, had a <laughs> great big giant piece of paper on it with those words on it. How to solve your na-na-na problem. And it was being done by a guy who was selling seminars. And I thought that was the biggest disservice I'd ever seen. Yeah. Let me create a problem for you so yeah. I can take your money to fix it. Yeah. The There's truth, a couple people who are still like that in this industry. I, I like the approach, though, that is taken by guys like um, Mr. Shot IQ, Joel Turner. Yeah. He's, right? He's teaching you, like, kind of how to – his whole thing is take control, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. It's uh, – Everyone has a different way of how they're going to manage a shot and, and deal with it. But I have also told people, you know, like what you, you're going to speak stuff into existence. That's what I'm talking about. So, yeah. And one part, I one thing I didn't put in my shop execution that I would have stuck right before draw, like see target. Visualizing? It's not a visualization, more just an affirmation. Okay. Like, I'm going to pound this one. Same here. I, I always would visualize making a good shot, and then it would happen, you know? Have you ever drawn the bow back and be like, you're coming to full draw, and you're like, this is going in the middle. Oh, yeah. You can feel it in your hands. Yeah. And then you draw the bow back, and there's some uncertainty, and I don't know always what causes that, but I think it happens before you ever draw back. <laughs> the only thing that would be better is one time I shot a 345 at 50 meters with my recurve, you know, which was not Stone a bad it. score. Even today yeah. would be a good score. I had a blinding headache. I couldn't think about anything. You were just shooting. I had such a tremendous headache that I was literally as miserable as a human being could be and still standing up there and shooting. So I didn't care about anything. I was just shooting. And the score came as a surprise. Right. I remember Vic Wonderly coming up to me and going, you know, just kind of shaking his head and going, how did you do that? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I can't see out my left eye. I'm in such pain. <laughs> maybe you needed to wear an eye patch the rest of your days. Or maybe I need to take a knitting needle and stick it in my left temple every time <laughs> yeah. I want to shoot a high score. Yeah. Because that's what it is, felt like. There is a, a thing that goes with... Um, you, you've reverted back to your training at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. And your training was enough to get, to carry you through. Yeah, it was. But, you know, I, not that I'd want to repeat that, but that yeah. that that takes it to the different level of you're so distracted that everything just kind of automatically happens. You can't interfere with it because you're so miserable yeah. that you can't do anything about it. And it's kind of like when you hear about someone who's in a really critical one-arrow shoot-off. Oh, yeah. Like, all I did was... Focus on my shot process. That's all you can do because it's not like the other person's going to yeah. block you. The last thing you can do is be like, oh my goodness, this is to win 30 grand or whatever, 50 grand, whatever the number is at Vegas or somewhere else. But it goes back to something you brought up in the last show, which I didn't because I think I was occupied looking at the screen or something when you said it. So I didn't catch it till I edited the show together and I heard it and it was brilliant. And it was like the principle of one arrow shoot offs. Yeah. I'm a huge advocate of. Lots of one arrow shoot offs rather than sitting there and going, I'm going to shoot 36 arrows, I'm going to shoot 36 one arrow shoot offs. Yeah, and when I was pretty good at this, I would do that and I would deliberately shoot a 70 meter shot, <laughs> one arrow, and then I'd go down and get it. Oh, no, no, I did that. <laughs> a bicycle might have been involved at times, okay, <laughs> but I would do that because it made it count more. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm going to make this one count. It made it count more. Now, one time I was um, a resident athlete in San Diego, and we had Denise Parker and Jen O'Donnell and Mark Hainline and Justin Hewish and Butch Johnson and Rod White and Lindsey Langston and a bunch of other really great shooters. And so what we would do is in February when the weather was miserable, meaning that it was somewhere in the 60s it and raining. Was, yeah, it was tremendous. Well, if you lived in San Diego and it was 60s and raining, it felt miserable. I, I, I get it. All right. I know if you're from Minnesota, you don't. But the point is, low score had to go get all the arrows. Oh, yeah. This was back when we were on that huge arrows. field and we had the little garage, basically, for our clubhouse. Yeah. One person had to go out and get those arrows in that rain, and the rest of us kind of sat there and Life. had fun. Yeah. That's a, good, and that's a good way to compete, too. So Denise Parker had to walk one time. <laughs> After that... She never had to walk again. She never let that happen yeah. again. That tells yeah. you something about the, uh, the the spirit of a champion. So. Yeah, there's a competitiveness that you have to have, too. I think if you really want to be good, like if you want to do it for fun, then do it for fun. Yep. Uh, if you want to be good, kind of got to have either an arrogance or a confidence or be a bit of an a-hole, whatever it is. But something's, you know, something's got to be there. So... The other thing, you know, about shooting a one arrow, you know, shooting it one arrow at a time. And what no one ever really does, especially in outdoor archery, you know, shooting at an end of six arrows. Say someone goes, all right, 58 is par or whatever. You know, if I shoot a 58, I'm not moving up. I'm not moving down. That that can often be the case in outdoor, depending on the conditions. They'll shoot 9-9 nine, nine to start and they will freak out. Because they can't understand that they can then shoot four tens in a row and still have a 58, right? So they're not taking it one arrow at a time. They're taking it six arrows at a time. They're thinking too far in the future. Yeah, Linda was like that. She was really bad about that. If she opened up with a nine or two nines, it was going to be a bad end. Like She was really going to struggle. She opened up. So she could open up, shoot nine nine, four tens, 58 be mad about it because she would remember those two nines she opened up with and then she could go shoot 10 10 9 10 10 9 58 and be totally content with that she's like okay whatever you know so it's really interesting how people will perceive value of an arrow depending on where it occurred it's just like shooting a i mean i saw mike Schlosser shoot a, a 590 indoor and he went 351 or sorry uh 291 299. No, he went 290-300, I believe is what he did. And it was like, you know, all right, if he shot 295, 295, would you feel any better? You know, it's all the same in the overall scheme of things, but there's a perception on how you, they valued each arrow at a different rate depending on when it came. And that's going to happen, I get it, but, you know, you, you're, you're then not placing value on each single arrow that's in the bow in front of you. At the end of the day, everybody's got their own personal process, but all the personal processes that are successful have a lot in common. And mm -hmm. for the moment that you're coming through the shot, some kind of a visual focus or some kind of a active focus, maybe on something different than what you're actually doing, can be a useful tool. Being focused on the outcome almost is a never never a good plan no oh, i'm not trying to hold on to a 10 here or whatever no yeah there's 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 always a visual like a mental cue or i just tried to move my elbow yeah so you're thinking of a kine, uh, kinesthetic cue yeah right uh -huh. i'm trying to move my elbow 100%. back through the shot yeah and i'm i'm thinking of something mental that's generally you know a, a little push to the target a little pull through the release hand and yeah and driving that force through my index finger which then helps me get around to my other one so you know my, my coach dick tone always uttered the phrase focus rhythm timing i've heard that and if you just focus on that phrase of course that has the effect separately yeah you know focus rhythm timing they're all positive things to have they are all things you need to execute a good shot and they actually give you something to anchor your mind upon so that you can accomplish those things. And it's something that you've had your mind upon while 
developing everything. Right. So it, it works to it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyhow. And that's working good. Jackson Mirich was uh, second at uh, yeah, uh, World Team really Trials, good. and Jackson's being coached by Dick right now, just behind Br- um, Bray Yeltsin was number one. And, uh, and Jack Williams managed to pull the irons out of the fire and, uh, and get on that team. Yeah. I think it's going to be a very interesting thing to see what happens in, in uh, Berlin, see how many people can keep their focus where it belongs with all the pressure of Olympic slots yeah. as part of that world championship. Keep their focus where it belongs, yeah. shoot with rhythm. And do it in with impeccable timing. There yeah. you go, focus rhythm timing. Yeah, it all matters. <laughs> all right, well, listen, folks, those of you who have won arrows, we've announced your names. Please email us at podcast at eastontp.com. If this, you're a listener to the podcast, go ahead. This podcast feels long. Uh, yeah, but it's going to be shorter because we're we going to remove, remove the whole first part of the show where yeah, we... Where we create huge controversy with our friends in Great Britain by saying some of the things we said about the coronation of the king. <laughs> They're going to think that's true. And how they pronounce certain metals. <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying about emailing the podcast? Podcast at eastontp.com. We would love to hear from you if you have ideas for the show. Also, if there's something you like. Also, if there's something you don't like. Let's hear from you directly. Questions, comments, rude remarks. We take them all and pay the same for each. (laughs) One more thing to consider is um, we'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't mind putting up a review on Apple Podcasts. Because in particular, that helps other people find the podcast. So um, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I guess on Spotify as well, if you put up a review, that will help other folks find the podcast. Appreciate all of you for listening. Thank you. We'll talk to you again soon. Is that the end of the show? <laughs>